to Fangraphs Audio once again. I am Fangraphs contributor and occasional destroyer Carson Sestouli. Today on the show we get some star power as Jonah Carey joins us. You may know Mr. Carey from his time with Baseball Prospectus. You may also know him as a contributor to the Wall Street Journal. And finally, you may know him as the man who is currently writing a book on the 2008 Tampa Bay Rays. Jonah Carey, as he's well-known to everybody, stops by merely for a status update so we know what the man is up to. Mr. Carey discusses Bloomberg Sports, a new venture he's working on with MLB.com, and our own R.J. Anderson and Eno Saris. He also talks a little bit about the Rays book and how his progress is going with that. And finally, he discusses a more irreverent venture, live blogging for the Wall Street Journal about the Westminster Dog Show. Turns out Jonah Carey loves dogs. That's the sort of white-hot analysis you get here at Fangraphs Audio. Thank you for joining us. Here's Jonah Carey. Welcome once again to Fangraphs Audio. I am Carson Sestouli, and today I'm joined by someone whose name you will almost definitely recognize. His name is Jonah Carey. He's written for everything. He currently contributes to Wall Street Journal. He's working on a book about the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, he's got his finger in as many pies as there are. Hello, Jonah Carey. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Carson? It's fine. nice to finally meet you uh, over the air, but uh, one way is better than the other, I guess. Well, good. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly exciting for me as well. Uh, Jonah, I figured... Uh, we have you around today. Uh, people are going to know your name, and they're going to know your work already. Uh, so I figured the, the way we could do this is just kind of a Jonah Carey update to see where you are and what's going on. Uh, and I actually have no problem kind of handing it over to you just to see exactly what it is you're working on currently. So let me hand it over. What are you uh, What are you doing right now? What's going on? Well, first first of all, you're creating this sense of gravitas by saying my, my full name each time. It makes it sound like, you know, oh, you know, the Queen of England is on the phone. Here's the Queen of England. Well, that's a natural formality. And I actually know for a fact so. that you are currently in New England. I am from New England, where people have, uh, where we have rules and we have civility. <laughs> that's true. That's very true. It's also a libertarian state, though, on the other hand. So you have to consider that. It's kind of anything goes here. you got all the fireworks and booze. Uh, anyway, so the big thing I'm working on right now is Bloomberg Sports. Um, we just launched yesterday. Uh, you can pick it up. MLB.com slash Bloomberg Sports is where you can check out the brand new fantasy product, which we're really excited about. Uh, 20 bucks gets you the draft kit. Twenty four ninety five gets you the in-season kit. You can get them both for 32 It's fantastic if you're in any kind of fantasy league. Not that I would ever, ever, ever advocate the horrible scourge that is gambling, but let's say, for instance, that you had some side bets with friends, that would be fine. Even if you do it for glory, that would also be fine. It's incredibly cool. The presentation is awesome. Uh, we had a bunch of Fangrass people at the presentation, actually, when we did it last month, and uh, I think everybody seemed to like it. And we liked them being there. And, was there an uh, unveiling? It's, it's really is that weird? There was some sort of unveiling? Yeah, there was an unveiling. We unveiled uh, to a bunch of bloggers and a bunch of different writers, and uh, Dave Appleman was there, and he seemed suitably impressed. And honestly, Dave is so impressive in his own right that if he likes it, then there must be something going on. So we hope that that's the case. And, and so far, the feedback has been very good. Uh, we're very pleased with it. And then we're also blogging about it. So myself, R.J. Anderson, who happens to also write for Fangraphs, Eno Saris, who happens to also write for Fangraphs. I don't know. Interesting coincidence, but uh, those two guys... Tommy Ransell, who's written for Hardball Times and uh, D. Ray's Bay and some other places, 
and Eric Heyman, who's also of D-Ray's Bay, and uh, I got in Tyler McKee, who's also from Bloomberg. So those five and myself are all blogging, and that's at bloombergsports.mlblogs.com. And basically what that is is uh, a couple times a day we put out fantasy analysis, and it's colored by, honestly, the type of stats that you would see at Fangraphs. So you're talking about, uh, you could be talking about wins above replacement, you could be talking about UZR, you could be talking about something like a home, home run to fly ball rate if we're discussing Curtis Granderson, which we actually did just today. So all that stuff goes into the mix, and uh, and then we're riffing off of the product, and we basically create a blog out of it. So, so the idea is to, to maybe use some uh, more uh, batted ball data or more granular information to look at things that would actually affect five, you know, five cat or ten, yeah, ten cat uh, fantasy baseball. Is that the idea? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, if you actually use the product, it's not like it's chock full of war UZR information per se. We're using it in our own analysis as bloggers, as people who are informed with this stuff, to use those, those kind of categories and those kinds of, uh, of bits of bad ball data to inform it. Absolutely, because the thing is, the way I would describe it is, okay, so you've got a player and, and he has 100 RBIs every single season, and that's great. The issue with any uh, team-dependent or context-dependent stat, as we know, is that if the context breaks down, that's a big problem. So say you've got a guy... You know, he's a 100 RBI man every year, but he starts to slip. You could see his defense slipping, and that, that really uh, concerns his manager. You could see his power indicators are starting to slip, and that concerns his manager. He might be dropped from cleanup to number six or number seven, and if that happens, all those RBIs, which seem like they should be a consistent stat, are probably going to go down because he's in a, le- in a less advantageous situation in terms of run production. So we figure if we analyze the components of it that way, and by the way, I should credit people like Ron Chandler, who have been doing this kind of thing for, I don't know, 25 years, uh, but if you look at those kind of components, that gives you a real good idea of what the player is probably going to be worth. Because if he's a good player, he's probably going to get opportunities to produce in a fantasy. Sense. Well, I'm actually curious. What did you discuss uh, about Curtis Granderson? Because uh, I assume that it sounds like you did something interesting with his home run fly ball rate. But I assume that if you're discussing context, that there's probably no better context than being in the middle of the Yankees lineup somewhere. That's exactly right. I'm actually going to try to pull this as, a, as I'm talking to you. We'll see how that goes. But this post just went up a, a few minutes ago. It was by Tommy Rantel. Uh So it talks about Granderson. It talks about Yankee Stadium. So we're using a little bit of um, – we've cribbed off of other people. I mean, of course, we've cited them. So uh, was it uh, Matt Clausen, I believe, did work on this. And he talked about uh, the park effects of Yankee Stadium and, and the home run effect. So the home run effect of Lincoln Yankee Stadium last year was – 1.261, so 26% more home runs at Yankee Stadium than otherwise. Uh, versus a Comerica last year was 974, so it was about 2% below average. So, you know, you've got a situation where suddenly Granderson is jumping into a much more advantageous situation. And I love his um, career home run to fly ball ratio. If you go to right field, if you're talking right field only, Granderson hits a home run on 29% of his fly balls, and that's in Detroit. So now you're putting him in Yankee Stadium, which is an absolutely crazy extreme ballpark for right hand, for uh, left-handed power, and you're seeing it even more. So Johnny Damon, who we consider to be a pretty similar hitter, if you look at both in terms of the style, he's kind of a slashing line drive hitter, and just in terms of the profile and everything like that, he specifically was a big-time pull hitter last year. And his numbers, he slugged 859 on balls hit to right field. That's slugging of 859 with a 31.5% home run to fly ball rate, which is completely off the charts and ridiculous. And Granderson, who I would argue has better power than Damon, already hit 30 homers last year in Detroit. This could be a huge year. I think that people are underestimating him, certainly from a fantasy standpoint, but even from a real-life standpoint. A lot of the, uh, the big splits that he's had, that's probably going to regress back in his favor. The batting average concerns, a lot of that is driven by balls in play. He's kind of unlucky a little bit last year. That's probably going to go in his favor. 
he could be a serious kind of player. From Roto's standpoint, you could be talking about something like 35 home runs and 100 RBIs is, I think, a reasonable expectation from the, in terms of just you know regular stats. Jonah, Jonah, you could be looking at a – go ahead. How annoying is it when, when the Yankees make good decisions – I know, I know. I, I, I'm raving about Granderson, but it is very annoying. Yeah, no, no, definitely. And, it, you know, Vasquez, I think, is another good decision for starters uh, spot. So, definitely, I think that both those guys are going to help a lot, and uh, Granderson is a perfect fit of that ballpark anyway. Yeah, okay, well, so the Yankees make good decisions, which they, it causes them to Terrible. be a, a specter of pain for the rest of the AL East. One team who will be feeling the brunt of that, who might be feeling the brunt of that, is the Tampa Bay Rays, a team with which uh, you've become pretty close, it seems like, on a number of different levels. You're currently writing a book. I think probably 95% of the people who listen to this podcast know that you're writing a book about that. Uh, you write about it sometimes at jonacarry.com. What's what's the status of the book? What, you know, like, what did you work on today? What's, what's, the, what's going on in your head? So uh, the chapter that I'm working on right now is actually about Vince Namoli. Uh, I have never had more fun writing anything in my entire life. It's fantastic. The stories that I've uh, read about and interviewed people about and discovered and unearthed about Vince Namoli are so, so good. And a lot of the stuff is public knowledge. There was the uh, infamous traffic stop when uh, a cop pulled him, him and his wife over, and uh, he says to the cop, don't you know who I am? I'm Vincent Joseph Namoli, the owner of the Tampa Bay Rays, the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. I mean, that was... Yeah. The classic, do you know who I am, is always going to get great traction. Yeah, I think the most famous, uh, or the most kind of depressing, do you know who I am, was uh, Chris Benson's wife at one point. She got oh, pulled. yes. Yeah, I think she pulled Anna out a do you know who I am, yeah. Uh, those are, I mean, any baseball-related do you know who I am is really good. I'm looking for the Chad Fonvilles of the world to really emerge as the, uh, you know, that's what you want. You want the really, really, really obscure ones. I mean, Namoli was an owner of a team, so that's one thing, but it'd be better if it was more obscure. Jonah, have you ever pulled so, out a do you know who I am? Nobody knows who I am, Carson. The, 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 the uh, you know, small, very, very, very small segment of the population that is sabermetrically inclined, some of those people will know who I am, and that's it. That's you know, an important demo. That's a really important demo, though. I, I guess I guess it is an important demo, but even within those contexts, I mean, I'm completely dwarfed intellectually by all the other people that are in the industry. I'm a stupid uh, journalism school graduate who happened to luck his way into baseball prospectus and stayed there for a few years and did some cool things with the help of many other people way smarter than me, and then went on to do some other stuff. So, well, you're, you know, you, you, it's, all, you're, it's all within context. You're telling the stories, Jonah. That's what we need. It's the, it's the narrative. I, I do try with the narrative, I will say that. Uh, so anyway, so the narrative about Vince Namoli, so all that stuff is great, but I, I think that maybe my favorite thing, and I, maybe this is a little bit of a scoop because it's going to come out in the book, but uh, the Tampa Bay Devil Rays had no uh, email access anywhere in the front office until 2002. So <laughs> if they had ticket agents uh, that were, they wanted to sell tickets basically, they had to pretty much jig up somehow a computer setup of their own, figure out how to get internet on their own. This is in Ray's offices. And if they wanted to email potential customers, they would have to do whatever, dude75 at AOL.com and have to send out emails that way. I just absolutely love that. I think that's so indicative of the corporate culture that there was just no email set up for employees for a good, the first few years of their existence, that it was typical in Somalia, and it was just everything was backwards, and everything was so micromanaged that you couldn't do anything on your own. Everything had to be approved, even something as simple as just getting an email address. That is sounds strange. 2002. Yes, that's not that long ago. Now you're in New Hampshire, and I know, having lived in New Hampshire myself, they, there was email even in New Hampshire in 2002. Uh, it, well, we were pretty much the last ones in the country. I guess it went uh, pretty much New Hampshire 
and followed by a Tampa Bay Devil Rays, and then everybody was all set. Maybe Pockets of Alaska were the other ones. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's probably true. Now, so I, I've sort of uh, this is sort of a, cu- a curious thing for me. Um, you've discussed kind of the project of writing of writing the book. I think this is the first book you've kind of taken on head on yourself. Can you yep. discuss some of the the, uh, the trials and tribulations, or some of the the peaks too, of of writing the book and what what that experience is like? Well, there's nothing that a writer likes better than to share his sob stories about how hard it is to write a book. So, bring it. <laughs> I'll try to do it. I'll try to do it briefly, but I'll try not to come off sounding too horrible and 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 about it because honestly, I mean, it's just a huge, gigantic privilege that ESPN Books and Random House said that you should write a book for us and. Uh, it was flattering. It's awesome. I mean, everything is good about it. You know, it, it's when you get into the process, it takes a long time, and to craft your ideas properly is extremely difficult. And I make jokes to people about, oh, nobody should ever wish, you know, writing a book on their worst enemy. Uh, so, but and but that's a lot of that is just the process. I mean, the actual book element once you get through it is just going to be phenomenal. But it's you know, while you're in it, you're basically sitting there and you're looking at the screen and you're trying to get all this information. I think my problem is that I over-reported this book. I did about 150 interviews, all told, which is really a lot. And uh, I've got just just reams and reams of transcribed interviews. I've got to figure out where does everything go. And if this thing happened in uh, 2002, how is it relevant to 2008 Rays? And, uh, you know, how much do I want to talk about the old history? Because, you know, how bad the Rays were before informs how impressive it was that they, they got to where they are. All this stuff, the decision-making is the hardest part. It's just, where do I slot all this stuff? If I could just somehow synthesize the information magically into a book, it'd be a really great book because I think the reporting, I don't want to get too high on myself, but I think it's really good reporting. I just kick my own butt to do it. But the writing part and just the putting it together and stringing the threads, that is the real challenge of any kind of nonfiction book that we're reporting is required. I think that's definitely the hardest part and, uh, and challenging for the best of us. Well, I think that it, it seems like it will be difficult at some level to separate this book and maybe you've thought about this as you as you've been working on this project I, I assume that somewhere in your head Michael Lewis's Moneyball kind of exists as this this both this challenge to be dealt with and also this inspiration because he he's particularly talented at being able to tell the story while also doing the reporting while also re, you know reporting like the like the requisite numbers too and I wonder how have you kind of used Lewis's text and his techniques to your advantage, or have you seen them as a challenge? Well, so I'm going to be really, really obnoxious and name drop for a second. Do uh, it. Do it right I, now. I, I have to do it. I can't help it. So you mentioned Michael Lewis. You and I have a mutual friend named Rob Nyer, who is never heard very, of the, never he, heard of the guy. He is he is definitely somebody that I think everybody in this podcast will know. And uh, in addition to being a great analyst, Rob is one of the nicest people I've ever met. And Rob is friends with Michael Lewis. And when I started this project. Rob said, do you want to talk to Michael Lewis about it? I said, sure. So he made the arrangement, and I called Michael Lewis, and we spoke for about 20 minutes. And I didn't really ask him, how can I emulate Moneyball? Because that's not really what I wanted to do. I wanted to know about process stuff. I wanted to know about what happens if a door signs in your face and person X won't talk to you, or what happens if you don't get access to this, or you know, how, to make, how do you make all these dancing ideas into one you know, kind of coherent storyline, and it was that kind of stuff that that he that we talked about, and and I, it's really facile and it's really simple. But honestly, what he said was, just kind of do what you do. You know, you can't don't try to be someone else. Don't try to be Michael Lewis or whatever. Just do what you can. And so, the tone of the book is just it's it's not going to read like Moneyball because I just don't write that way. First of all, I'm not nearly that good, and secondly, I'm a 
more informal as a writer. Uh, I just think my style is different. The way that it comes across is different. So you just have to kind of do your own thing. Now, having said that, the template for Moneyball is great. And I think that the main message that has to come out of it is write some stuff that people have never seen before. Write it in a way that's really interesting and punchy and, and present a good narrative. You know, if you could do that, that's as good a way of emulating Moneyball as anything, even if your style is totally different and the subject is totally different. Okay, well, on, this, on, the, on the topic of the subject being totally different, you were recently doing some live blogging for Wall Street Journal, to whom you contribute, and you were not live blogging about an event that I would have guessed you would be. You were doing some sort of dog show. Was this the big dog show? I don't even know much about dog shows. It was the Westminster Dog Show. It is indeed the biggest dog show in this country. And uh, I would say that of all my interests, more than baseball or any other sport, uh, the dogs is number one. If I could drop it all and somehow find a way to write about dogs for a living, there's a pretty good chance that I would do that. Is this a new development, I, or has this been the case for some time? It's always been the case. It's not something that I talk about in my writing or publicly all that much, but I've been a dog owner my whole life. I love dogs. I know a scary amount about dogs, and uh, I, I just love it every way. And I can watch – I can sit down and watch a dog show in two ways. I could do it in a best-in-show kind of way where – you know, it's silly, and I'm cracking jokes and all this stuff. Or I can sit and I can say, "Oh yeah, that's a you know, that's a Harrier." I could tell you 15 things about the Harrier breed or about the uh, you know English Cocker Spaniel or whatever. So both it goes both ways. So when I uh, when the Westminster was coming up, I pitched it to them. I said, "You know what? We should do six hours of live blogging about the Westminster Dog Show." And normally I do baseball and football for them and stuff like that. And I said, "Okay, that sounds pretty good." And they actually seemed to like it, and readers got a kick out of it and all that stuff. And uh, Actually, my book agent emailed me after the fact and said, maybe you should do your second book on dogs. And I didn't say no right away. It's not out of the question that if I do a second book, and right now it's so hard to do the first one that it's hard to think about it, but if I do a second one, maybe I'll do one on dogs in some form. You, so there you go. That is bizarre to me. I can't believe that you said those things, but it's hilarious. <laughs> uh well, that's great. That's great. I think that is that is exactly what I was looking for. That is the Jonah Carey update. That's what's going on. Oh, oh well, you also have twins. <laughs> we also I also have twins, which, by the way, is taking up more of my time and energy and and uh, and and attention than anything else. And I wish that I could just be doing that 24 hours a day, is just doting on them because they're the best. But uh, book will get done soon, and then I'll disappear into hibernation for a little while. And we're, yeah, and, and uh, deservedly so. Well, hey, Jonah, thank you so much for joining us, giving us the uh, giving us the update. If if my if I'm not mistaken, you've actually gotten yourself in even deeper. You've agreed to do a roundtable with Dave Cameron next week. Is that right? I have, and I'm very excited. I've known Dave for a few years, and he's you know one of the very best in the business, and could not be a nicer guy. And that's going to be awesome. I'm looking forward to that. Well, I'm excited for that, and so we'll see you uh, we'll see you next week then too. So uh, thank you very much, Jonah Carey. Thank you, Carson. All right. This has been the Jonah Carey Status Update. Thank you for listening. That has been the Jonah Carey Status Update, and that has also been another episode of Fangraphs Audio, home to white-hot baseballing analysis and serious dog-related conversation. Don't forget that Fangraphs Audio is available multiple times per week. I believe this week we're coming at you four times. In fact, Wednesday, we have a roundtable with our own Matt Claussen, 
and our own Jack Moore. And on Thursday, we offer an interview with Charlie Wilmoth, both the editor of Buck's Dugout, the SB Nation blog for the Pirates, and also a PhD candidate in music composition. Finally, I would be remiss not to remind you that this week Fangraphs throws its hat in the publishing ring as we offer the 2010 Second Opinion. That's Fangraphs Fantasy Baseball Companion. Thank you for joining us at Fangraphs Audio once again. Thank you for listening.